Today's scripture reading is taken from Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. Thank you so much, Wendy, for reading God's word for us. And now that we have platformed the anxiety of young parents everywhere, let me tell you about my dreams. I uh, have recurring dreams. I don't know if any of you have recurring dreams, but I do. And in my dreams, I am personally traumatized. I mean traumatized to the point where that dream wakes me up, and then once I'm up, I, I am just up. And initially, I begin to examine the dreams, not interpret it, just because it's the same dreams happen over and over and over. I was awakened this week with one of those dreams. And in that dream, I'm flying a plane, heading towards some object that ordinarily you wouldn't want to head toward. And I am in my dream flipping every switch, you know, worried about the anxiety. I don't know how to fly a plane. How did I get here? And in the middle of my dream, my co-pilot, instead of helping me, suddenly becomes my former supervisor. Some of you have heard him preach here. Who is saying to me, this is not going to look good on your performance evaluation. And as we get closer and closer and closer, I wake up. Now, I suspect it has something to do with my hidden anxiety. Hidden no more. I suspect it has to do with this struggle I have that I'm never really that competent to do anything that God asks of me because often I am flying a plane in this dream, but sometimes I'm just flying. And... and I'm flying in slow motion with this slow motion scream in the back of my head and heart, fly, and I'm flapping. Have, have you not had this? Is it just me? It's just me. Okay, so I'm flapping as hard as I can, but very slow motion. And the ground is getting closer and closer, and I'm thinking, I am not equipped to fly. My bones are too dense to fly. I can't fly, but I can fall. And I'm falling and falling and falling. Just before I hit the ground, I wake up and then I'm like, uh, welcome to the world of those who are called to full-time ministry. Because the problem with full-time ministry is everything we hope to accomplish in ministry, 
In fact, everything by which we will be evaluated by the end of the year requires the dynamic, graceful intervention of somebody who doesn't work for me. Nothing we do depends upon ourselves. Nothing of eternal value can happen because I shout at somebody for 45 minutes once a week. And so, we rely on God. And in spite of the fact that we bring nothing to it, God in His grace still calls. This week, we're looking at a rather short text on the calling of God to all of us. And we're beginning right here in verses 3 through 5. Now, when we look at these verses, it's important for us to know that Paul is demanding that we look at these verses through the filter of verse 1. Remember what Eugene spoke of last week. He reminded us that that therefore stands for something. That therefore is there for some reason. And you remember he said that chapter 12 marks a major transition from understanding the content of the gospel to applying the work of the gospel in community every day. This is a major transition. Now, Sinclair Ferguson is perhaps... Well, at least one of my favorite living pastor theologians. He's a pastor who studies and understands the ways of God. And he asks his readers specifically in this book, Devoted to God, to go through the first 11 chapters of Romans to see this principle. And in the first 11 chapters, he asks you to get out a book, get a pen, and go through every verse and mark down every time there is an imperative in the first 11 chapters. Count how many times Paul says, this we must do, urges us to do something. This is a command of everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you know that he does the work for us, by the way? In 11 chapters, only seven times is there an imperative. This is what we must do. 11 chapters full of indicatives, which means this indicates what God has done. Not imperatives, but indicatives. And then chapter 12. In one chapter, 20 to 0 imperatives. The transition is here. And that is why I love what he is saying. And this is actually a paraphrase of what he... God has dug down deeply to plant our roots in the rich soil of grace. That is the indicative. This is what God has done. Therefore, he expects and equips us for the fruit of obedience. That is the imperative. So in our text this morning, the first thing the Apostle Paul reminds us of is we are not here by our own merit. It took us 11 chapters for us to understand truly it is what God has done for us by His grace. We are not, any of us, here by our own merit. And he begins by saying this, for by the grace given to me, that is literally by the goodwill of God, and he is reminding his readers, this word that I'm about to write for you is evidence 
of my awareness of what God has done in my life. It's indicative of what God has done in me. That is why I'm writing this. And why I'm writing this is it's evidence of the fruit of my responding to His work in me. That's what obedience is. It is an imperative response to what God has done in us. Friends, um, what this really means is that every act of service we see, not just the act of obedience and the apostle writing out this letter, not just in the obedience of the church to preserve it for us even unto this day, but that ministry guide that you hold in your hand is indicative that somebody has heard an imperative and is faithfully serving. The ushers who helped you find your seat, the fact that you can hear me speak clearly, our AV team, somebody is responding to what God has done in their lives with obedient and faithful service. That's why the Apostle Paul is saying, by the grace given to me, I don't come by my own merit. And notice the next thing he says is, I say to every one of you, meaning um, I'm not writing to a specific subgroup in the church. I'm, I'm not just writing to the credentialed believers. I'm not writing to the talented believers. I am writing to every one of you. This is a call in grace to everyone among us. Everyone. Not to think too highly of himself. But think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Meaning, he is sending us back to verse 1. I urge you by what? By the fact that you have so, so, such great merit? That you bring such great gifting to the table? No, by the mercies of God. I urge you, all of us, to look at our condition through the lenses of God's mercy. In other words, let us not depend on our merit. Let's not love our merit. Let's depend and love God's mercy. That is the lens through which we must look through all of this. We are to be mercy-dependent and mercy-loving. Why? Why are we to respond this way? Because of the work Christ has done on the cross. That, that's it. That indicates His great love and mercy for us. And how are we to do this? We're to do it, each of us, according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, hang on to that thought. We're going to return to it at the end of this message. His point is this. None of us bring much to this task. It's not because God was saying, man, I need somebody with Ian's personality. No, he would be better off without my personality. It's not because he says, these people have great talent in accruing income. That would help me in my global mission. No, it's not because we bring something to the task. And so why do I flap my arms? I flap my arms because I forget about the grace that brought me to this place. And I begin to think it's up to me. We cannot enter by the means of the gospel of grace if we're going to live by the gospel of our merit. 
That is exhausting. And that's what leaves, leads to service burnout. That's what leads to pastoral or ministry burnout because we're flapping our arms furiously trying to meet our own goals for personal achievement. Christ has achieved everything I need. Everything I need has been done for me. Love this mercy. Here's the words of Augustine, a fourth century church leader. God commands what He wills, and He gives what He commands. This is good news. It means even though we're not here by our own merit, we are here on purpose. Every one of you is not here just because you decided this might be a good day to be in church. Every member of GBC is here on purpose. Even if you are a newcomer and you're thinking, well, maybe this is a church for me, it's not because you need a place to grow in community, which you do. It's not just because God doesn't assign you to an orphanage. It's because God has assigned you to a family, yes, but it's also because His family is not yet what He desires us to be without you here. You're here on purpose. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. You know, this means that um, not even independent thinkers are independent. It means we are all of us called to live and serve in an interdependent community. He has chosen this metaphor by the inspiration of God on purpose. We are the visible presence of Christ's body in this city. The implications of that are, are profound. That, that means, first of all, if our neighbors in McPherson think of us and they think Baptists, then we're fronting the wrong thing because we're not to be the visible image of Baptist ministry in Singapore. We're, be, we're to be the visible image of Christ. If our neighbors are thinking anything else but Jesus, we've got some work to do. And more than that, if, if we're thinking that we don't need to function in the body, that we used to function but now either we're older or offended, or we don't think we've got anything to bring to the table, then we are profoundly falling short of God's glory for us. If all we do is listen to one small part of God's body on a Sunday morning, we are not yet where He desires us to be. This is a, an amazing metaphor. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but I consulted Professor Google, and, and here's what he said. You know that, that your body, the one you're sitting in right now, has over 100 trillion parts that we call cells. And all of those cells are 
strategically arranged in 12 different systems in your body that are all working together. You have the nervous system, the immune system, the digestive system, reproductive systems. All of these systems have different functions, but they're all working together for one grand purpose, health and life. And it's very possible you're sitting here and not even thinking about 11 of those systems, or maybe even any of those systems. You may have no reason whatsoever to think of your renal system, but if right now you're incubating some stones, the day is coming when you're going to remember you have a renal system. And when that day comes, it's not just your kidneys that have to rearrange your calendar. Your whole body is going to have to wait on your kidneys to get right. That's why every part matters. We cannot be wounded. We can't have parts of our body that are broken and dysfunctional and, and not, not acting and then just keep on going like we have no problems. That is a problem with our mental system. In the church, that's a problem with our spiritual system. If we think we can keep on running and ignore the parts of the body that are hurting or not working or broken down or separated, we have been strategically brought together by God's grace, fitting in the body for a specific purpose. And here's some good news. God, in His grace, equips. It's not just that we're here by the grace of God, but when God gives His parts an assignment, He equips that part for the assignment. He doesn't give an assignment without equipping us. If you sense that God has called you to something, have a growing confidence that God has equipped you for it. So if, if this is true, if God has truly called us to enjoy Him, to, to sorry, glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, then we've got to believe that He has prepared us for this very task. That, that's why we exist. We can grow in confidence then that He has given us these different gifts so that we can, what? Use them. So, number one, once we have surrendered all of our high thoughts about ourselves. Number two, once we have been filled with the wonder of God's mercy toward us displayed on the cross. Number three, once He has done His transforming work in us, He surprises us with grace gifts that we didn't earn that we can't learn and don't need to learn so that we can serve Him with joy-filled purpose. Having gifts, though, according to what? It's, it's not according to how long I've been in the church. It's not according to my personal need to have platform time. It's not according to the status that I bring to the role, it's according to the grace that God has given them. That's indicative, indicative of His work. So use them. That's imperative. 
Now he's going to give us a list of these. I'm going to go over them briefly. We won't have a lot of time to, to unpack every one. But let me say that, first of all, this is not an exclusive list. He's giving a representation of these gifts that he gives to his parts that he has placed on purpose by his grace so that we might fruitfully and joyfully serve him. If you want to check out another partial list, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you want to look at an additional partial list, you can look at 1 Peter 4. These are all partial lists. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, that's ESV, and let me just be clear, a prophet is someone who speaks forth the words of God. It is not necessarily somebody that predicts the future. However, if the Word of God says something about the future, then that is also true. A prophet, though, is simply someone who is gifted to respond to the famine spoken of in Amos chapter 8. The time is coming, saith the Lord, when there will be a famine for food, not, not a thirst for water or a hunger for food, but a hunger for the hearing of the word of the Lord. This generation is desperately in need of someone who will stand up and say, this is God's word. This is not Ian's word. It's not Ollie's word. It's not Eugene's word. It's not our opinions. Just simply, this is God's word. And now let me complain again about English. It is difficult to translate every Greek concept in English. So this phrase, in proportion to our faith, just needs to be unpacked a little bit. Because firstly, there is a definite article in front of the word faith. Meaning it should literally be the faith. Now, our faith is similar but if you say our faith, it really should be capital because faith is a proper noun. It's the dogma. It's what we believe. That's what he's saying. If you are one who speaks on behalf of God, and then this word proportion. Again, a tough word to translate. The Greek word is the word from which we get our English word analogous. Analogous means as compared to. And usually when you use the word analogous, you mean comparing something in a way that brings greater clarity. That's the word. That means if you have the gift that God has given you by His grace to speak on His behalf, it better be compared to the faith. That means don't expect this preacher to ever say, oh, I know what God's Word says, because, but God is doing a new thing in our day. Uh, no, He's not. He is the same today as He was yesterday, and He will be the same forever. His Word and my Word should be analogous, should be indecipherable. That's why the Apostle Paul said, don't be afraid to scrutinize what I preach. Ensure that it stands up to the Word of God. That is how you know if this bro really does have the gift of prophecy. 
if you have the gift of service. Now, let me say about every one of these gifts, all of us are called to speak God's Word to one another. All of us are called to sing God's Word to one another. That's why at GBC, what we sing is important. It's not about the tunes we like. It's not about the performance. It's about are we speaking God's Word. Corporately, all of us are asked to speak God's Word to each other. But some will be gifted joyfully to be more fruitful in that ministry. And the same is true in service. Some among us will be gifted especially in their service in ways that give them greater joy and unusual fruitfulness in their service. And then third, one who teaches will be known by his teaching. And, and let me be clear, teaching does not mean Bible Wikipedia. It does not mean, here I am, I'm going to give you this Bible information, now repeat it back to me. This is not what the original audience believed teaching to be. This gift means God has given you understanding of His Word in a way to apply it to the listener's life in a way that can be seen. The New Testament preachers, neither, or Jesus, did not primarily teach through seminars. Just like the Asian philosophers didn't sit down his disciples and say, let me teach you this three-hour seminar, then I will call you my disciples. No, they observed the teaching in the life of their teacher. That is New Testament teaching. When faithful obedience to God's Word can be seen, when a teacher stands before those who are watching and says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, that is the gift of someone who is joyful and fruitful in the gift that God has given them. The one who exhorts will be known by his or her exhortation. This word is parakaleo. You know, a parakaleo was actually an individual in an athletic event who was not participating in the event, he or she was on the sidelines of the event. And as the marathoners came by, they would run alongside their favorite and target him for courage, shouting, you can do this. Calling out courage in somebody. That's what encouragement is. And, and I totally get it. We're, we're Singaporean and uh, criticism is helpful. I agree. It's just not a spiritual gift. When, when you live in a culture like mine, Canadian, we're, we're insecure, so we're definitely critical. You notice encouragers. I'm the product of people who ran alongside of me, even when I was stumbling, especially when I was stumbling. And they would shout in my ear, whisper, Ian, you're more than this. God is doing something in your life. This is the joyful fruitful gift of encouragement, and I'm a part of that fruit. I am evidence that somebody in my life had that gift, the one who contributes. I need to say a word without pointing fingers at TV evangelists. 
This is also a very specific word in Greek. The one who contributes, it's, it's interesting that this word could be interpreted simplistic to the, to the simple-minded one. But that's why knowing a little bit of Greek can be a little dangerous. Because what it really refers to is those who live a simple life. They live simply on purpose so that they can give liberally. It does not mean that every person in the church should be told to give your last dollar. Seed your faith with your dollar in our ministry. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying there are some in the church that God has gifted to live simply. I'm not afraid to say that my dad was one of these men. And I often thought he was a simpleton. That, that's on me. We got gifts of clothes and books for birthdays and Christmas. Every Christmas, clothes and books. Every birthday, books. I made friends just so that I would have toys to play with. My dad was extraordinarily generous. And in order to be that way, we lived simply. The one who leads. This is a tricky one, right? But, but let me just be clear. This has nothing to do with Western concepts of leadership. That's why I hate that I have seven boxes in Vancouver full of Christian leadership books which are just plagiarizing Western leadership principles and telling Christians, you should be like Alexander the Great. Really? He sat in his horse and ordered his men into slaughter. That's who we call great. This is not the kind of leadership that the New Testament talks about. This word literally means in Greek, and again, it takes a lot more words in English to translate it, stand out in going first. And zeal means hurry, speed. It's not really the word passion, although we associate it with passion because those who run out and do stuff typically have passion. You see, a Western way to do leadership is for the pastor to stand up and tell all of you, go out there and reach our neighborhood for Jesus Christ. But a Christian leader, gifted with leadership, is out there reaching neighbors for Jesus Christ. That's just what Christian leadership is. And sometimes Christian leaders, you know, I've heard this in so many Christian leadership seminars. Uh, guys, if uh, no one's following you, you're not a leader, you're just out for a walk. Okay, that's a funny line. But Christian leaders go out for a walk. They, they don't do opposition research. They don't check in the polls to see if everyone's for it. They're so convinced by the worthiness of the task, and they're equipped with joy for the task, they just go. They just do it. And finally, a mercy. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. You know the most common concern about this? In, in QCM, 
when the, at 11 o'clock, we're going to be talking about our compassion ministry. The, the biggest concern, the most common concern about this kind of ministry is how do you know you're not being taken advantage of? Am I right? We're, 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 we need to be good stewards. How, how do you know someone's not on the take? So you may have heard me say this before. I, I know it happened at least twice. But one time in particular, um, I heard my mom groaning, and she was looking out the front window, and I grew up on a, a piece of property that had a long driveway, and, and she was groaning, saying, oh, your dad's done it again. And I looked out the window with her, and, and there was dad walking up the driveway. And um, why was he walking? Because he, he does have a car, or at least he did, before he gave it away that day. He walked home because he gave his car away. And because I am who I was, I said, Dad, how do you know they're not scamming you? And he laughed. That was his answer. He just laughed. I'm like, I said, Mom, that's not, that's not an answer. What's wrong with him? He's, he's laughed. You know, you know that word cheerfulness? That word cheerfulness means hilarity. It is actually the Greek word that we translate to hilarious. That means something that's hilarious means it's extremely fun. You see, when God's given you the gift of mercy, nothing is more fun than mercy. Nothing stirs up joy like mercy. I know there are people in this church that God has blessed with this hilarious gift of compassion. Showing mercy on people who don't have what we have, who don't have the capacity to do what we can do. You are here by the grace of God on purpose. Every one of us are called in some way to engage in every one of these gifts. But there are some of you who have been specifically gifted by God's grace for your joy and for His glory. So, the apostle says, use them. Here's one last thing I want us to notice. What is the measure that will help God feel pleasure over these gifts? What measurement does the pleasure of God use? It's, it's surprisingly not in the competence. It's surprisingly not in the excellence. Nowhere in this text does the Apostle Paul say, preach excellent sermons. Have passion when you do it. No, nowhere in this text does he say, be a great teacher. Do you, do you notice that the measurement is stewardship? Just... Be faithful. That's 
where the joy is, he produces the fruit. We offer our faithfulness to use what he has given us for our good and for his glory. And so I want to bring us back to this reflection question. As we prepare to land this and come to the Lord's table, what in the church are you here for? There is something. There is no believer in this room who has not, by God's grace, been specifically and strategically placed in this body. What, what are those gifts that you have? Now, now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, I, I, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what they are. Well, friend, if, if you are in that position, I want to say this to you. You don't need a spiritual gift inventory. Now, if you've taken one, it's not bad. I'm just saying that probably discovers the talents your parents gave you or, or the things that others have noticed in you. But let me take you back to verse 3. We are, every one of us, gifted. So use them, now I'm quoting verse 3, according to the measure of faith God has assigned. For 10 years, I said no to God because I trusted my history more than I trusted God's ability. The only thing I was good at was failing. And so I said, no. I'm physically tongue-tied. Don't ask me to preach. And so I said, no. How many of you, don't raise your hands, it's rhetorical, are sitting here trusting your disability more than you are trusting God's great, awesome ability to do more than you can ask or think or even imagine. You see, if you are wondering what your spiritual gifts are, you don't need an inventory. You just need the faith to start saying yes to God. Because your gifts and the joy and the fruit that comes with them only will be discovered on the other side of your yes. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. We're not handing anything out. We're not going to ask you to check a box to see what you're willing to do. But as you think about what in the world and this church are you here for? Could you just agree? It's something. There is some reason. And, and then, as we prepare to come to the table, remembering the indicative 
what Christ has done. How will you respond to the imperative? And so use them. Is there something in your life that's in the way? Some harsh word? Some broken relationship? This is a time when God's people are called to examine our hearts. Remember the price that was paid for our forgiveness. And then turn. Just right now in your heart. Turn back and say, oh God, I am not my own Savior. I need you. I turn to you afresh. I confess that I am in need. Not only of the things that you have already done. But I need to be useful, useful to your glory, to build up the body of Christ, the visible image of Jesus in this place. Oh God, will you not get me off my bench and give me something to do? Because today, I'm saying yes. Yes to whatever it is that you have gifted me to do. Rise up, give me courage to be the man, the woman that you desire me to be. Useful for your pleasure, for your glory, to build up your body. Thank you, Father, that you are a God who responds to the cries of your people. Thank you that even when we don't know how to pray, just our hearts turning to you moves you in mercy to work in us your glorious gospel. So Father, as we come to your table today, we remember the sacrifice of Christ. We remember that the good news is this that while we were yet your enemies, Christ died. We weren't pursuing you. We weren't looking for you. And Christ died for us. Made peace between us and the Almighty so that you might come to us, fill us with joy and peace and life everlasting. This we celebrate in Jesus' name. Amen as those who come to help me serve, as they come to the front. I want to say, because I recognize that many of you uh, uh, may come from a background that is different than ours, I want to say clearly that we do not practice closed communion. That means you do not need to be a member to recognize the body and blood of Christ. If you consider yourself to be an authentic follower of Christ, we welcome you to participate. But if you have something in your life that you feel, oh, I, I just don't feel right about it, then, then let it pass. Everybody at this moment should be cultivating the garden of our own hearts, not looking at what you're doing. So just feel free to either take or not as God gives you liberty. I'm going to invite Pastor Eugene.
to lead us in a prayer for the bread. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you indeed. Uh, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you that He laid down His life in order to redeem not those who were loving, but those who were unworthy. And Father, we thank you for this life that you have so graciously given to us entirely out of your love and mercy. And Father, we thank you for this bread that represents the body of Christ broken for us. He died so that we can be brought in. We thank you that by his sacrifice, we can become members of his body, uh, given new life, and given gifts that we can use for your glory. So Father, we pray that as we eat, fill our hearts with joy, fill our hearts with deep thanksgiving, and help us to eat together with uh, great uh, thankfulness to you and great worship to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Scripture tells us that on the very night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this bread represents my body. Do it whenever you take it in remembrance of me. Now invite Elder Song to lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for the cup. Let us pray. Our Father, as we prepare to take the cup, we want to pause and take a look backwards, inwards and forwards. We take a look backwards at the cross, where your son was uh, suffered, spilled his blood and died for our sins. We want to look inward now, Lord, as we search our hearts and bring before you sins in our life and ask that you will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then finally, Lord, we want to look forward to the day that we will feast with you in your kingdom. So we come with gratitude and we pray that all this truth will shape and motivate us to live in a life that is worthy of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents a new covenant inscribed in my blood. Do this whenever you take it in remembrance of me. Now, the Bible doesn't say this, but if you will hand your cups to the aisles, the ushers will pick them up. What God's Word does say is that immediately after supper, the disciples sang a hymn together, and then they went out. And that's what we're going to do, so I want to invite you to stand with our worship team as we close our time together. Let's worship Him together.
Beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, let's serve one another and by doing so, displaying Jesus Christ for our joy and for God's glory. Receive now the benediction. For from God and through God and to God are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. We may be seated. We're going to have uh, elders uh, around the front and the back if you need prayer. And also for all of us, we invite you to go downstairs uh, for a time of fellowship.